Well, hello and welcome to our fourth episode in the series covering the key principles in Steve McConnell's new book, More Effective Agile. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm glad you finally decided to return. It's a long commute, but uh, I think it was worth it. (laughs) All right. So today we're going to cover three principles under the heading of more effective work and specifically more effective agile projects. And it's an interesting word because I know we talked a little bit about that. You think this was a straightforward word, projects, but you certainly ran into a maybe somewhat unexpected holy war about what does that mean? What does a project mean when you're writing the book? I think that's a good way to describe it. I think it is a, essentially a holy war. You could describe it as tempest in a teapot. I think the vast majority of people know what you mean when you say the word project. I think there are people who are up to their eyeballs in whatever the latest and greatest concept is. And so to me, it was interesting that I had people say, oh, we don't do projects anymore. We do releases. You know, we're agile, so we don't really think in projects. We think in releases. I had other people who say, who said, you can't use the word release because those have a waterfall connotation in our organization. So sure. we think of it more as initiatives. There really is, I, I think where we are now uh, as, as the software industry is we don't have a single word anymore that really describes whatever the thing is that teams work on. But I think I think project gets the point across. The point is, you know, does does the work that any individual team do really have a well-defined uh, beginning state and a well-defined end state with some kind of package of work in the middle? Um, yeah, sure. Some kind of on some kind of cadence it does, whether it's per iteration, call that a project or whether it's a longer scale initiative. Right. Uh, but yeah, different companies now conceive these as releases or value streams or programs or initiatives uh, or, or in a lot of cases as release projects. cycle maybe. I mean, particularly teams that are heavily into CICD kind of stuff, right? You think that, that the notion of is there actually a finite stop point that's something, you know, that the end of what you're doing is out. It's not. It's necessarily maybe thinking about it in a longer context like that. I think there are, you know, there. Uh, I think there are moments that are more significant than others. So, you know, if you're just constantly releasing uh, uh, updates to the Internet on a site like Amazon, there's probably no really well-defined stop point. Although even there, if you go into any kind of freeze mode for holiday sales cycle or something, there is a little bit of punctuation around that kind of timing. You know, anytime you put software into a device or that kind of thing, even if you can constantly upload updates to the device, you do still have the concept of, you know, we're not going to want to be updating people's apps. People get tired of having their apps updated even every day, you know, much less on an hourly basis. So sure. there's some kind of punctuation there. Sure. That makes sense. So for the purposes of this podcast, and, and as you did in your book, we'll just use the term to represent all those ideas, and, and we'll just talk about projects in that context. So let's let's touch on the first key principle under this heading, and that's keep projects small. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a, as a homeowner, you know, and you and I both do a lot of repair stuff around our house, mm-hmm. and we have pegboard shrines in our garages. And, <laughs> yes. You know, I ascribe to this principle, keeping projects small, but recognize that a lot of times I end up having half my tool, tool bench unloaded onto a small project that I think was going to be a small project. And right. My intention is often a challenge, but there's a lot of research, I guess, that, that, that really correlates what history says about project success associated with projects being smaller. Why don't yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one question that comes up sometimes is when you say project small, does that imply team being small? Right. And, and I think the answer is most definitely yes. Um, you know, when we say small project, we're not talking about a week-long project with 100 people on it. You know, we're talking about 
uh, you know, a duration of a week or two or three or four. Well, if we're talking about project, not iteration, then we're talking about, you know, who knows, some short amount of time, way less than a year. Let's put it that sure. way. And, uh, and the team is small, too. The, a small project is typically going to be considered to be one team. Uh, and, uh, and anytime we get into more than one team, I think the vast majority of organizations would no longer refer to that as a small project. So, so I think anytime we can do the work with one team, you know, i.e. we have a small project, we get all kinds of efficiencies with that. We don't have to have multiple layers of management overhead. The coordination occurs largely within the team. There often are external dependencies, but really the back and forth is inside of a small group of people. Right. Those people can get to know each other well. They have tacit work practices where they just they understand how to work with each other, develop an understanding of that. Uh, and I think you know the agile world has definitely deprecated the role of documentation. And so that really does put more of a burden on tribal knowledge or tacit work practices. And it's really hard to scale to multi-team initiatives if you're relying solely on tacit, meaning unstated work practices and tribal knowledge, meaning not right. not documented. Right. Um, so, you know, and I think as the pendulum has swung with Agile, we've, we have seen a swing back away from completely undocumented, a complete lack of documentation into more, I think, more highly expressive, lightweight forms of documentation. Uh, so, you know, we start out maybe with an informal notion of user stories. Over the years, that notion of user story has been elaborated uh, so that now we've got the notion that the, the written version of the user story is really just a placeholder or a mnemonic for the real story, which is the conversation. Right, um, right. So it's not totally tribal knowledge. The conversation would be the tribal knowledge part, but there's also a placeholder for, you know, that we can expand and elaborate in terms of the, the part of that that's captured. Right. I mean... Uh, on on the notion of just evidentiary information that you can you can harvest out there, there's certainly been studies done on the size of projects. I mean, you can you can quantify them any way you want. Probably easiest way would be you know thousands of lines of code or lines of code kind of stuff. And there's a lot of evidence. I mean, you you actually did some research in in Code Complete um, uh, associated with looking at project successes and understanding. How, like, how smaller projects had a higher pro- probability of being successful than, than bigger programs or bigger projects, right? Yeah, we could we could attack that particular question from quite a number of angles. And in the lecture series that I do on understanding software projects, I talk about the four factors life cycle model. And size is one of the four factors. And if you want to look at the absolutely essential dynamics that's important to understand in how software projects work, size is one of the four key uh, attributes that you really need to understand to, to understand what makes software projects challenging or what makes them what makes them go well. Right. So so um, and then like you said, there there's been research for a really long time that says that you know in, in rough terms, the bigger the initiative gets, and that includes the number of people on the team as well as the duration, uh, the more challenging it becomes to do successfully. And so. And I do think that it's it's good to look at both of those factors, the duration and the number of people on the team. Now, the number of people on the team means you've got more communication paths, right. which really which really means that you've got more opportunities to miscommunicate, and then that means errors creep in at various points in the project. And then duration matters too, because duration goes back to that topic of 
tribal knowledge and whether you've documented it through something persistent or whether it's all oral tradition. If sure. you've got a project cycle that lasts a few weeks or a month or two, then people's memories are maybe good enough to uh, to remember what you're trying to do for that amount of time. But if you've got a project cycle that's going for a year or 18 months, most people's memories aren't good enough to remember the amount of detail in a software project, especially bearing in mind that you know, if you have to remember some amount of content for a couple months, it's content that accumulates over a couple months, then only so much content can accumulate in that time. If you've got 18 months, you've got many more times the content that's accumulating and you have to remember it longer. So it ends up being a, a doubly more difficult challenge. So we got to employ different practices. And basically what that means is overhead increases on larger projects to be able to do them at all. We can keep the project small, meaning small team size and short. Right. Uh, then we can use more informal and, and essentially uh, more streamlined, uh, more efficient practices. We keep coming back to this notion of interactions and communications throughout these principles. It's a big thing, I think, and it's a real, it's a key tenet of, I think, uh, successful agile implementation is this that whole idea that communications, keeping them short, keeping them crisp, keeping the inter- right. interactions down. And, you know, you even mentioned things about, about when the errors do manifest themselves during the life cycle even the incidences of the errors rise with the project size, right? The, oh, yeah. And, and, and it's and not just multiplying by the size of the project gives you the number of errors. The error rate or error density increases as project size increases typically. So you get disproportionately more errors with larger projects. Right. And and the ability to fix them in a reasonable amount of time that your you're retiring defects becomes a little more difficult. Yeah, right. So the longer the project lasts... And the bigger the project gets, the more chance there is to have latent errors that don't get detected for a long time. And uh, and so like this is one of the reasons that the idea of um, having short iterations, even if the project overall is bigger, but if the iterations are shorter and we have the discipline to drive to a releasable level of quality at the end of each iteration, you know, it's unlikely that that'll detect and eliminate 100% of right. errors. But if you do it well, you can detect and eliminate a pretty high percentage, uh, certainly a higher percentage than if you're not doing that. And, uh, and so the name of the game really is just to try to keep errors in check um, as, you, as go, you go, not just right. let them stack up to the end of the project. And that requires, there's no passive approach that's going to accomplish that. It requires active work aimed at getting the error count down. Right. So I think we're going to touch on this in, in, in a future podcast, but... Um, Maybe you can tease us with with some ways for a larger project to, in effect, maybe emulate the smaller project in terms of chances for success. What kind of things would you think about doing with a larger project that might help emulate the smaller ones? Yeah, I think that kind of is the sixty four dollars question, and and uh, you know, I think the answer the answer is. You do it as much as you can, and you probably aren't going to be able to do it completely because if you could do it completely, you would actually be thinking of having a bunch of small projects instead of one larger project. Right. Um, but, you know, I think there are a number of factors that come into play there. One is whether your architecture supports dividing the work up into, you know, mostly independent uh, teams and mostly independent chunks of work. Uh, also, the idea of just applying the notion of just decomposition to uh, the work that you're doing. And I think this is an area where uh, teams have 
some difficulty making the transi- transition. They actually have to develop some skill at decomposing larger chunks of work into smaller bits of work. And then that redefines what, what the project is. And so, you know, in general, I think any I think anytime you see a company conceiving a project, I mean, certainly a year is a long time. Right. Longer than a year, huge red warning signs should be going off. And the first the first thought should be, how can I conceive this as a series of maybe three-month projects instead of having one big project? And there are all kinds of good things that happen if you can reconceive it that way. Interesting. No, that's a good, that's a good answer. So uh, how about the next key principle in this topic space? And that is the notion of keeping sprints short. Um, that, that really kind of reinforces the inspect and adapt feedback loop, right? You, you know, you so oftentimes inbound work into a, into an organization, particularly maybe things like support tickets can crash into a sprint that's in progress. And there's a lot of pressure on the team to accept it and disrupt their normal workflow. So, you know, potentially you'd like to have those sprints short for that reason, right? That that it gives, it gives an intercept point between sprints. It gives it, it gives an organization stakeholders from the outside, the ability to kind of get in at some point as opposed to waiting a lot longer time. Yeah. I think that's one reason to keep sprints short. Um, when you, anytime you're asking somebody to wait, we're not going to address your issue now, but we'll address it in the next sprint. If the sprints are two weeks long, which is the most common duration that, right. that we see, then asking somebody to wait, you know, they're going to ask in the middle of the sprint. So on average, you're asking them to wait a week before you consider their request and then and then plan it into some future uh, iteration. This is not unreasonable. I mean, sure. yeah, there can be a hot fix or some production issue that you need to address more quickly. But for anything that really is a, you know, a requirement that somehow didn't get addressed or didn't get detected a long time ago, but it's being detected now, it's really unlikely that that requirement needs to be addressed today. It can be addressed a week right. from now or two. I mean, a sequential, now. you know, like, like if you compare that to a sequential design environment where you have three to six month cycles, that's really unreasonable to ask someone to stand down for three months before you consider something new being added. Right? That's hard. It is hard. And I think that, you know, then the expected wait time is essentially, you know, one and a half times the duration of whatever the iteration length is. And so if you have two week uh, iterations and the idea comes up mid current iteration, if it's really that important, you'll plan it in for the next iteration. And then so total of three weeks later, there's your there's your new um, feature. Uh, whereas if you're on a three-month cycle, then your expected wait time is four and a half months, which is a long time. And, sure. you know, I think I think uh, an awful lot of the ideas that come up mid-sprint are not actually going to be prioritized into the next iteration. Uh, you know, they're good ideas. Maybe they'll get done sometime. But when you really look at whether we really need to address them in the next iteration or or there's still other stuff that's important too, they're just not the latest and greatest new idea, you know, a lot of stuff is just like, okay, fine, we'll put it on the list, we'll prioritize it in, and it will get addressed in due course. Um, but there too, I think the person who's requesting it can see a steady output of functionality on a pretty frequent basis, whereas with quarterly releases or, you know, God forbid, longer releases than that, they're they're waiting forever to see the next release that doesn't have their functionality. And so <laughs> right. the psychology is just completely different. Right. I, think. Right. I, I would also say that um, and I don't. I don't talk about this in the book, but um, I've got a presentation where I show a, a graph on this. That I think the pressure to change requirements 
is a function of time that increases. And I think there's some amount of time that can go on where the pressure to change requirements mid-sprint is effectively zero. But you go up to a few weeks, it rises a little bit. You go up to a few months, now it rises a lot. And so, you know, the more, it really goes back to the general point of the more opportunities people have to at least have their their idea considered. It doesn't have to be accepted, just to have it considered. Um, then I think the less pressure there is to just get into a reactive mode and add stuff the moment people request it sure. instead of addressing it in a more planful way. I mean, you could even see scenarios where a product owner would have a, a bunch of things in an active backlog that something um, would change priority. Something else supersedes. And, sure. and so rather than being reactive and jump on it, uh, there's a certain amount of annealing that happens by product owners sitting on it and, and helping the stakeholders understand what, what the sequencing queuing is. Sure. And, and an active product owner, uh, you know, I was, the way I was talking about it the last couple of minutes was as if the, the requirements only being considered at sprint boundaries or sprint transitions. Right. But of course, if it's the continuous. product owner is active, it's continuous. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So we talked about trust before in the earlier podcasts. Um, that has, certainly has some effect with shorter sprints too, right? Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> uh, uh, trust is a good idea and it's nice to trust the team. But there's an argument to be made that the less we have to trust the team, the better. <laughs> and so if the team, the team is producing steady evidence of progress through right. working software, there's some point where we might feel like that we trust the team. But in essence, we aren't actually trusting the team because they're just constantly producing work. So, But you see evidence of that flow. And then you, you, right. you imagine that the machine will continue as it's, as, as it's been producing. Yeah, I mean, right? trust essentially covers the gap between the evidence we have or what we're seeing actually happen versus what we want or what we're hoping will happen, the smaller that gap is, the the less need there is for trust. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, and you can even think, you know, we're talking now about sort of the, the results of teams working, but you even talk about the process that the team uses can benefit from shorter sprints, right? You, the team has an opportunity to do stroke points on its own performance, to do things like retrospectives and say, you know, what did we do in those last two two sprints that just made it so difficult to get our work done? We need to change something. So that notion of doing that on a two-week sprint versus mm-hmm. doing it on three or six-month sprint, you have more opportunity to maybe change your, your your actual process of making the sausage, so to speak. Yeah. We get, you know, we get so many benefits from shorter iterations that we could do a whole podcast just listing the benefits, really. Uh, Write that down, <laughs> Mr. Producer. Um, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, the team gets more opportunities to reflect on its performance, do root cause analysis, decide what corrective ta- action it wants to take, actually implement the corrective action, and then observe whether the corrective action accomplished the effect that people thought it would have. You know, so we, we I shorthand describe that in the book as inspect and adapt cycles. Sure. Um, the organization gets more opportunities to see the team making progress. Uh, as you said, we get more strobe points on the rate of progress and in a Scrum environment that typically would be expressed in the form of velocity, uh, so we get we get a uh, time to take the essentially the measure of the the rate of productivity of the team through velocity. Um, we also get that virtuous cycle of driving to a releasable level of quality more frequently, which decreases the space in which latent defects can accumulate. You know, the 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 longer a defect remains latent, the more potential problem it has. So. If we're regularly converging uh, in a way that reduces the the time that a defect can remain latent, that's that's virtuous. Um, 
you know, we've got the the people who whose role it is, responsibility is to monitor the progress of the team. So evidence of progress to them is a good thing. But then we've also got all these stakeholders who are on the periphery of the team who may not have explicit responsibility for monitoring progress of the team, but they do care whether the team is making progress and they can see progress as well on a more frequent basis. So we just get benefits coming and going. Sure. Um, yeah, it also absolutely. creates, you know, we, we, we often see organizations bringing specialists in uh, to teams, not for the a whole project cycle, but for an iteration or two. So maybe there's a need to bring in a usability specialist, or maybe there's a need to embed an architect on a team. So if we have relatively short iterations, it just gives natural points to say, all right, we embed now the, the architect. The sprint's dedicated sprint to that or something. Sprint. Yeah, sure. Right. Absolutely. Well, you're, you know, one of your favorite Welsh models out of the book, um, certainly when you talk about complex domain type of issues with Kinefin, there's things that are certainly helped by shorter iterations and having the team be able to kind of explore in short periods of time as opposed to kind of digging in for three months and having yep. nothing at the end of a three-month period, right? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting point. In the Kinevin model for software development, we oscillate a little bit between the complicated domain and the complex domain. In the complicated domain, we're trying to plan out everything before we do it. That's easier if we have a short iteration, and we're not really trying to do that that often in software. Sure. In the complex domain, we're mostly conceiving our work as a series of probes where we do a little bit of work and then see what happens. And you know, there that goes back to that tight feedback loop idea where if we're going to do a probe, we don't want to wait three months to see the results of the probe. Absolutely. We would like to get feedback much more quickly than that. Yeah. So short iterations support that too. Well, and you know, in the bigger picture, you, you, this would fall under something along the lines of risk reduction, right? You yep. are you are really trying to expose things as early as possible, and you know, in terms of leadership, leadership doesn't like surprises, but can certainly handle risk if it's understood and they can make decisions based upon what they perceive as a good path to go. So, so shorter sprints certainly help there too, right? Yeah. Historically, when we've talked about risk management at constructs, we've differentiated between X. Ex- extrinsic and intrinsic risk management, or we kind of interchangeably say explicit or implicit risk management. And historically, risk management is mainly focused on explicit bolt-on activities that we do expressly for the sake of identifying and prioritizing and, and managing risks. And so that's things like, you know, creating a risk list or, you know, monitoring risks or calculating risk exposure. But really, the more powerful risk management approaches in software tend to be on the intrinsic side. And so with short iterations, there's a, just a huge raft of generic risks that we get with larger uh, iterations that just go away. We don't really have to do anything to manage them because we've intrinsically managed them through short iterations. Like, again, historically, going back 10 or 15 years, even after the advent of Agile, but before it was commonly being used effectively, we still had the issue of teams not knowing what their real status was. Where sure. Teams would think they were a week, a month from being done, and really they're six months from being done. But if we're doing short iterations and we're calculating velocity and we're tracking our story point uh, release burn down, there's no way that we're going to be six months from being done and think that we're only one month from being done. It just there are too many things we have to do wrong, and so this notion of we have no idea what our real status is, it's not really a risk anymore in a well-run agile project. We've but we haven't done anything really bolted onto the project to address that risk. It's all implicit in just the way that we're doing the work through planning the work of the iteration, 
tracking the work of the iteration, completing the work of the iteration. Um, likewise, the risk of we're going to get to the end of the project and all of a sudden we're going to have a thousand defects reported that didn't get detected over the <laughs> right. course of the project. Absolutely. That's another one that it just can't happen on a well-run project where we're converging to a releasable state frequently. So, you know, to me, it's interesting that if we were to go back to, say, training materials that Constructs was using 15 or 20 years ago, there are a large number of risks that we would say these are common generic risks that you should address that we really don't have to even talk about anymore um, uh, in an agile context because they just don't come. Yeah, up. they don't materialize. But you know what's what's nice about all this is that there, there's sort of a built-in accountability that happens. I think in some respects with that, right? You get the team in a shorter sprint thing and knows what their responsibility is. Their work is visible. Mm-hmm. People can see that it see it from boards and things around. So so there's mm-hmm. no mistaking of who's got responsibility for what and what is going to happen. Right. right. And I think, you know, so at this point, I think because the, the more effective Agile book really is aimed at leaders, there is a role for the leader to play here. And I think a person could listen to the last five minutes of our discussion and think, oh, you know, Steve thinks that there are never any issues on Agile projects, <laughs> there are never any quality issues. Yeah. You know, some of these practices require external accountability and discipline. And I think one of the more common failure modes that we see or challenge modes is teams not pushing to a releasable level of quality at the end of each iteration. Sometimes teams do let defects accumulate across sprints. And then they, it might not be quite as bad as it was in the waterfall days, but you know we're starting to creep closer to some of the badness of the waterfall days when we allow that to happen. And one thing that the leader really needs to do is emphasize the importance of quality mm-hmm. and, you know, and add some external accountability to, to, to stay um, to, to use the practices with fidelity and actually get the benefit that it's possible to get from the practices. Yeah, that's really that's a really good point. So I think we have time for one more principle today, and, and that sort of ties uh, some of the stuff together as well, and that's the notion of delivering in vertical slices. Mm-hmm. We're, we're taping this around lunchtime. I'm from Philly. I think about vertical slices mm-hmm. with cheesesteak. Uh-huh. Uh, Similar, maybe, in terms of looking at it, but maybe you can explain what that what that notion of <laughs> vertical slices looks like in a non-food way. Hmm. Yeah, I'm having a hard time <laughs> mapping that onto cheesesteak. Um, there's probably some way to Provolone, do it if I had more time. peppers, yeah. onions, roll, you know. Well, I think what we see in, in the software world is that, um, you know, we, we kind of have the, the notion of a vertical slice is that we're going to do all the work necessary to deliver end user visible functionality. And if there's database work or backend work or use user interface work, we're going to do all of it end to end. And that would be the notion of a vertical slice. A horizontal slice is the idea that we're going to work in essentially um, a, a layer of the, the system that we're working on. So we're like just doing user interface work or we're just doing database work or maybe we're just doing you know other some other kind of business logic layer or something like that but we don't actually validate the work we're doing by doing an end-to-end slice that that produces user visible um functionality and i think that the i think there there are reasonable arguments to be made in favor of both sides and so this is one of those cases where the reason this remains a little bit of a thorny issue is that it's not 100% good on the vertical slice side or 100% bad on the horizontal slice side. It really is just a matter of it more often being more effective to focus on vertical slices. And so 
when we when we take in the idea of a multidisciplinary cross-functional team in agile development and the ability to make most decisions locally and we also add in this notion of wanting to have the shortest possible feedback loop the idea of doing a vertical slice where we can do the end-to-end design and implementation and put it in front of the end user make gives us the shortest possible feedback loop for, for a swath through um, whatever it is that we're building right if we're doing only work on the database we don't really have anything we can put in front of the end user so we can have validation of a sort of the work that we've done but we don't really get true final validation until all that database work in some sense or other gets fully exposed uh, to the user right. in terms of its functionality right so um you know, and and I think we have to acknowledge that this is a learning curve for teams, especially if they haven't been doing agile before or haven't been doing the vertical slicing before, is you know, a lot of times teams will react and say, Wow, this just seems way less efficient. You know, it'd be more efficient if I could concentrate Spend just on time. the database yeah, stuff or exactly. just on the user interface exactly. stuff. But I, I think it's a false efficiency because what really happens is we do the work, we feel like we're more efficient. What really happens is there are some defects in the work. And then we're back to the latent defect topic where those defects remain latent until we actually get the end-to-end functionality built out. And then we start detecting defects, but we're not detecting them close to the time they were created. We're detecting them, you know, maybe multiple iterations later. And that's running counter to our goal of trying to keep the defects at as low as possible sure. every step of the way. Sure. I mean, you made a, I think there's an example in the book about non-technical stakeholders. I mean, you, you we live in technical worlds. We're technical people in many respects, and sometimes it's easier for us to to extrapolate or envision what something might look like with missing pieces. But, mm-hmm. it, but in the case of non-technical st- uh, stakeholders, it might be it's actually easier for them to see something without having to say, "Okay, imagine that this is here. <laughs> imagine you push yeah. this button." And, and if they can't see it, sometimes it's hard for them to grok what what the attention oh, yeah. is. Right? No, I mean it's it's impossible to underestimate the degree to which non-technical stakeholders can misunderstand what's involved in implementing something. And one rule of thumb that's emerged in my mind is the simpler it looks on on the user experience, the simpler the non-technical stakeholder thinks it is to implement. And in reality, most of the times it's exactly the opposite. The easier it is to use, probably the more there is going on under the covers to make it easier to use. Mm -hmm. So there's an inverse relationship there. It's a pretty loose inverse relationship, but um, it can lead to some misperceptions about what's involved in the work. Um, the other point I think is is important to make, and this was actually something that was um, expressed to me by one of the reviewers of the review draft of the book, is that when teams work in, in horizontal slices, uh, well, let's rephrase that. When teams work in vertical slices, it remains clear to the team that the product is the product. It's what the end user sees the in whole the vision. product, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. But if, you, if the teams work in horizontal slices, it becomes tempting for the team to see the architecture as the product. You know, we're redesigning the database, so now it's really cool. And it is aesthetically cool in some technical aesthetic sense to the team, but it's not cool to the end user who's unaware of the work that's been done. And so I like this phrasing that I didn't come up with, but I got from one of my reviewers about you have to guard against the architecture becoming the product, and vertical slicing is one way to do that. That's a, that's a really interesting point. The architecture thing is certainly... 
deliberate architecture really is needed to enable the vertical slicing, right? You have to right. think about how you mm-hmm. do that. And, and, you know, I think you're right. It, it's easier for a team to think about things in terms of horizontal. But, but it's not the mean, it's, right. it's not the end, it's the means to sure. the end. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, you can do things like in a UI, you could use emulators, right, to have, uh, and people could work on the UI and maybe feel like they're, they're, they're testing what normally is going to be given to them. So in a slice sense that having the entire structure there, they actually can use the real data and real stuff that gets bubbled up through the architecture. Um, well, yeah, there, yeah, there are different tools always, you can play with, right? Sure. Sometimes we're, you know, having to create mock objects or some other kind right, of thing. Exactly. That we don't really implement part of the system. But, but the idea of vertical slices is as much as possible in our multidisciplinary cross-functional team, we have the skill set that we Capture need everything. to actually right. do a real vertical slice. Right. So the other thing that happens, I think, and, 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 and this is another interesting aspect of doing that thing is vertically because you force the team to think about the design decisions that, that might have to happen across those functional layers that might not happen until much later. If you did, if you did, horizontal, or if you did horizontal work and, and you, you built some assumptions into your horizontal work and you got mm-hmm. to a certain layer of that architecture and went, oh, my God, everything we did for the last whatever mm-hmm. is wrong because we didn't, we didn't validate a design assumption that now has to be corrected throughout. So maybe forcing, the, forcing some of that tighter feedback loop about, about the design decisions made in, in vertical slices, does it help in that respect? Uh, I think it can. I think uh, – um, I'm not sure I see a, a huge benefit one way or the other on that. I okay. And certainly – Certainly in the waterfall days, you could have people architecting an ivory tower that once you get into the details, uh, the pieces don't play together the way that you thought they did because of some detailed technical issue that was not considered. You know, I think an initial response to that kind of, I wouldn't say pre-agile, but it was maybe kind of in transitional as we were beginning to think about agile, was the notion of a spike where we would actually do, uh, uh, take a very narrow slice and go all the way from top to bottom, really, to just see how the, um, you know, whether the, the full stack worked the way that we thought it did. Uh, so I think that, in you know, you could possibly conceive the notion of a spike as a precursor to the idea of uh, vertical slices. I'm a little uneasy with characterizing it that way because I think that, you know, whereas we could say, okay, if you are just working purely on the architecture but not doing deliverable vertical slices, you can kind of miss the mark in one way. I certainly think it's possible to, to miss the mark with vertical slices where if you're working in a certain area of the application, everything's going fine, but then you get to a certain piece of it where all of a sudden you're like, okay, Oops. Yeah. yeah, there is yeah. some deep issue where things are right. not playing together the way we expected. So does this does this put maybe more pressure on a good product owner to in the, in the sense of looking at how you would do backlog refinement and... and, and and feeding things to the team in vertical slices that would actually be, you know, the, you could see that particular role being much more of a critical role in terms of how you make those decisions before a team actually even sees any of the work? Yeah, I, I would not characterize it that way. I think that the product owner is unlikely to have the technical expertise to be able to understand that. I think what I would do is maybe turn that around and say, this is an area where it's important for the team, at the, the devel- development team, um, to have a really good working relationship with the product owner where the development team can go back to the product owner and say, hey, look, you know, you want us to implement this in this order, but there's this area, technical area that we need to explore. It would actually be really helpful to the project in terms of understanding the full 
technical landscape if we could do this other thing first. So like dependencies, you might want to delay a feature because of a dependency you might need to work on. And then, and so gang that up together and do that as a separate thing. Yeah, or you just don't understand what the dependencies are. So you take on the work of a particular feature in part so that you have you force yourself to work through the understanding of what the dependencies are. And you know we have this issue that I talk about a little bit in the book. I talk about it more in my Understanding Software Projects lectures, but the idea of teams naturally, their kind of natural tendency is to do the easiest stuff first and the lowest risk stuff first. This is actually the least effective way to go about it. We're much better off if we take on the highest risk areas, the the areas that are the most unknown first. Sure. And so that's something where the typical product owner is not really going to have any idea of what the unknown technology areas are. They can develop a conversational familiarity with it, but they need to be, they need in some sense to be taking at least a little bit of direction from the team on that kind of issue. Perfect. I think that's going to be all we're going to be able to do today. This has been a good discussion. This is, you know, some really interesting back and forth. I think we're going to have to leave it at this point for this episode. Thanks again, Steve, for bringing a lot of insight to this work topic. Um, We'll have you back soon, I hope. Yeah. Thanks, Mark, for a great conversation. All right. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer and Devin Musgrave today in the flesh, our producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode and you have comments or would like to talk with one of our practitioners, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.